on one on another side of it, I'm really into uh, salvage materials, you know, which is a uh, a good Christian perspective in that you know we we look at something and we flesh that out some more. Yeah, we look at something and we say, no, it it can't be done with. There's there's value still there. There's beauty still there. Hey, everybody, Paul here. Today's episode is a unique episode. In fact, it's actually a recording of a live event, the first live uh, podcast recording event that I have done so far. And it takes place in a little town up in northern Minnesota called Otter Tail, Minnesota, population 500, maybe. And this event happened on August 10th, 2019, as part of a weekend-long festival conference that's always held up in Ottertail, Minnesota, part of an event that a ministry puts on up there, Firestarters Ministry, which actually started as a band, a traveling band, part rock, part hippie, part charismatic, (laughs) and I go back back probably 17 years with these guys and gals. And they have essentially, up in Ottertail, Minnesota, rebuilt their city uh, physically. Um, They've rebuilt this small town into something which is really, truly remarkable and unbelievable. Uh, Many of these guys and gals that were part of this band that ended up turning into a church all are tradesmen, they're craftsmen, they work with their hands, and they have rebuilt this city using salvaged materials from local barns across northern Minnesota, and it's truly remarkable. They have a style all of their own. Uh, I've always enjoyed my friends being with my friends up there, and they were gracious enough to invite me up to be part of this weekend-long gathering of arts and music and discussions about culture. So what I ended up doing for this live podcast event is I shared a little bit about the connection, as I've talked about before in the Christ and Culture series, between the meta-stories, our invisible values, the what Dwight Hopkins called the spirit of our culture, and how our aesthetic and labor are always subordinate to that spirit. And it always reflects those invisible values. It always reflects the ultimate God that we serve as as Lord over our lives. So I shared for a little bit about that. And then I invited up a panel of leaders from across the country. A couple of the guys live locally in Ottertail, Minnesota, uh, Peter Thiel and Wendell Danielson. But along with them, I also Also invited on the panel, Elijah Mosley, who is a record producer in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he has worked on some, you know, pretty significant records, especially in the charismatic worship space over the years. We also had up Chris Dupre. Chris was... uh, essentially the one of the founders of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, which is, again, a, a, a charismatic organization. I don't know if you'd call it a church. They did eventually develop a church, but it was a, a, a charismatic ministry that's dedicated to having 24 hours a day, seven days a week, worship and prayer going on around the clock. And that's been going on there actually since 1999. Uh, many of you that come from a charismatic background, might be familiar with it. 
But uh, since 1999, 24 hours a day, seven days a week in Kansas City, Missouri, there has been a ministry that has been hosting around the clock worship and prayer. It's quite the phenomenon. It really is. Uh, And Chris uh, started that. Uh, He was essentially one of the leaders along with a guy named Mike Bickle that started that ministry, and you'll hear from him. And then also on this panel is Leonard Jones, and Leonard Jones is one of the pioneers of charismatic worship music. For many years, he directed the music ministry at a church in Carolina called Morningstar. He did that for 20 plus years, and it was a groundbreaking music ministry in the charismatic space. Uh, Leonard is 67 years old, and he is one of the most virtuoso musicians I have ever been around, a brilliantly creative musician. Um, Much of the music that comes out now in evangelical contexts is a direct result of the worship school that Leonard started there. Uh, he's really quite creative. He he is a true hippie. That's <laughs> came to know Christ in the Jesus People movement. Um, and just very, very, very creative guy. So this was a really interesting panel of people that are especially uh, have been leaders in this charismatic world. And even if that's not the world that you occupy, maybe that's not your Christian tradition and maybe even some of the lingo that they use, you know, it's very normal for charismatic Christians to, to just easily throw out, well, the Lord told me to do this. And other people that don't come from those contexts go, uh, the Lord told you, like, what did that sound like? Was it an audible voice? So I get that for some of you, charismatic lingo might not be in your wheelhouse, but I still really think that this is a a pretty unique conversation. It captures some pretty important charismatic history from guys like Chris Dupre and Leonard Jones. But I think there's a lot of stuff in here, even for those of you that don't come from charismatic context. Uh, It was a unique conversation as any conversation that I have or anything I do on this podcast, I don't expect you guys to agree with everything. You know, we're all about exchanging ideas, freely exchanging ideas, hopefully having nuanced conversation about stuff. So, you know, even if this isn't your stream, that's all right. This is where I came from. This is my background. And so it was really a joy to talk to these guys. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this live event. First deep talks, podcast, live recording event that I've done. We're hoping to do more in the future. There's also video of this available on YouTube. So if you'd like to watch the the event, the recording of this event, that will also be available. I'll put that in the link to this, um, this podcast. And then before we get going, I also want to to thank my Patreon supporters for making episodes like this possible. You can become a Patreon supporter as well. And I want to thank uh, Paul Rizzi or Paul Rizzi. Paul, you're going to have to let me know how to pronounce your last name as this month's Theology 201 contributor. Thank you for your contribution. Thanks for making this, this program happen. So, all right. Now, truly, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this special live event from August 10th, 2019. 
Well, thanks everybody for coming by. Thanks, Pete, for this is a Peter. This was a great idea. I, I love doing this. This is something new for me. Of um, about a year ago. By the way, my name is Paul Anleitner. Many of you guys know me. I've been coming up here. We go way back with these guys. Probably seventeen years. I mean, maybe less than that. Maybe fifteen. Because we had met. I had met the Firestarters the same time I met my wife. So thank you guys. That was like. <laughs> They had been coming up to this camp that my wife's family was essentially running, and I came out one summer. You guys would come out and do a night of worship, and we'd have a, a wild time. We still, like, will, time to time, if we want to rekindle the old flames of love, we will put on, oh, yeah, let God arise, which is his, but you guys really killed it all the time. So uh, about, about a year ago... Uh, I had finished up my master's in uh, really like philosophical theology. I had been meeting with a lot of young guys in particular who were processing a lot of questions, concerns that they had about God and faith and thinking about leaving the church. And as I was sitting down with them, uh, you know, it was about a group of 20 or so I'd get together with fairly regularly and I'd try to refer them to things. We'd have conversations and I'd go, well, you should check out this book. And then I'm realizing this is like, you know, 21, 22-year-old who's either just got out of college or they're majoring in something else. They're not going to pick up this theology book. I, I'm just a nerd, you know, so I'm not going to refer that to them. And then I started thinking about, well, could I send them some like YouTube videos or a podcast to help answer their questions about this? I started going through the list of Christian podcasts and I was kind of unsatisfied there. So I said, well... I don't know, I've been blessed and afforded all this training, years of teaching the scriptures and been able to go off to seminary. I want to share at least the things I've learned and hopefully be helpful for some people. So we've been doing this for about a year now. The name of the podcast is called Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. The goal of it is just to help people see how the theology that we believe is deeply, deeply affects every other area of our life and how theology is actually all around us, whether you're binging a show on Netflix or whether you're sitting in church, there are theological claims that are happening all the time. And so that's kind of the goal. Today, I wanted to have an opportunity for a discussion, but I want to kind of set this discussion up. I'm really looking forward to doing this. And I, I want to set it up a little bit with uh, maybe a bit of a story here. And uh, my undergrad was in history. So you have to forgive me. This is going to be a little bit of, little bit of history here, but I think it'll help illustrate a point. That I want to talk about and address today together. So let's go back in time, you know, some 3,000 years ago to the ancient city of Babylon. If you've spent any time in Sunday school, that's a city that you're familiar with. You know the name Nebuchadnezzar. You know, uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah called Nebuchadnezzar the destroyer of nations. In the heart of Babylon, in the city-state of Babylon, a very wealthy city, 3,000 years ago, there was a 600-foot-tall temple. And, and inside this temple may very well be the most important thing in all of Babylonian culture. There was a golden statue. Daniel says that this golden statue was 90 feet tall in this 600-foot-tall temple. Golden statue. And, in, and the Babylonian people believed that this golden statue was actually a physical manifestation of their chief god, Marduk. They actually believed that the temple itself was a physical portal to the realm of the gods 
in which this chief god Marduk was making himself manifest in the form of this golden statue. It was a link between matter and spirit, though they wouldn't have certainly thought of it in such a way. The ancient people didn't have this division between matter and spirit like we do as modern people. When a new king or a new emperor, we could call them, would rise to power, there was this really important ceremony that would take place in order to sort of consecrate the power of that king. Inauguration ceremony, if you will. In order for the king's rule to be legitimate and justified, the king would have to walk into the temple and there was this ceremony that they called, it was, the, it was called the grasping of the hand of Marduk. So they would go to the gold statue of Marduk that they believed was this physical link between the Marduk spirit and the physical world that we inhabit. And this king would go have to grasp the hand of the statue. Now, what this king has done by grasping the hand of Marduk is it's a symbol. The king's authority is now authorized by Marduk. So now Marduk is physically represented in the statue, but the spirit of Marduk is also made manifest now in this king. And that's why the king was, he's at the top of the, the food chain and no one should challenge his rule because by challenging his rule, you're challenging this chief deity, right? So we might look back on a ceremony like that and we might think, what a weird, primitive, superstitious people. But maybe let me get us thinking about something that is far more common to us today and see if you can see any connection here. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of future historians looking back on America. Though they never originally intended the office of the president to be a, a king, a king-like office, in many ways, the office of the president is treated in our culture very much like a king. It's like, you know, he's at the top of the pecking order in the executive branch. So let's just think a little bit about what an inauguration ceremony looks like every four years when a new president is inaugurated. And this has been going on since World War II, this current inauguration style of ceremony. How is his rule inaugurated? Well, on the western facing steps of the Capitol building, looking out to a 550 foot tall Egyptian obelisk, which is Washington Monument, right? a monument dedicated to a legendary military leader in our history who led, as we often tell the story, a God-inspired rebellion against the mighty British Empire. And he became our first president, George Washington. The one appointed chief of justice now hands and presents a Bible to the president or who will soon to be president, his Rule has not been inaugurated yet. And this new president swears, he puts his hand on and he swears a solemn oath on that Bible, right? Offered to him by the chief justice to defend the supreme ideals of the American people that's embodied for at least us in our culture in, in some ways like another sacred text for a lot of American people. He's sworn in to defend what? the Constitution of the United States. Like it's another important sacred text. Now I'm using this word sacred because we have this immense value that we place on that in our civilization, in our culture. And so he swears on a solemn oath to God. In both past and present cultures, from ancient Babylon to modern America, there is an ultimate reality, an ultimate story that people in every civilization have believed this story 
is a story that animates their culture. It gives the culture its values. And from that value system flows all of the rest of culture. We can think of culture as the total way of life for people. I want to, John, if you're up there, I want to put up this graphic that might help us understand how this, oh, sorry, Peter, you've got it. This invisible domain, this meta story, this story we believe about God, our invisible values are deeply connected to the rest of our life. So culture is the total way of life for a people, group, community, or civilization. Right here in Ottertail, I don't know if you guys know it or not, you have a unique culture here. Very unique, right? In many ways, like there's similarities in the musical expression that happens here that reminds me of years ago when I was in college and someone first handed me my first ever Morningstar Worship in Warfare CD. Like I picked up on a similar spirit. Well, what is a spirit of a culture? The spirit of a culture is the ultimate meta story, the supreme values, the transcendent ideas. These are invisible These are things that exist in a domain that is not visible. What is an idea? What is a value? What is it when you guys create music here that you say you want it to be beautiful and creative? Well, it takes a certain shape, but as an idea, it's an invisible idea. It's an invisible value that flows here in this place from a particular vision of God that you guys have, right? It's a particular story that you believe about God and you see God as creator and you see him as good and you see this and you care to express this and the way that you express this is through two primary, the two other domains of culture. So we have spirit and the spirit is the top of the hierarchy, this relational hierarchy of culture. Everything else is subordinate to the spirit. You have the aesthetic. The aesthetic of a culture, whoops. The aesthetic of the culture is the way that the spirit, the meta story and the values are expressed in our art and the things that we create. It's a manifestation of our deepest values. The creative expression of spirit is made manifest in the arts, the stories and works of beauty that a culture creates. And in a way, if you're comfortable with this idea, where, you know, I grew up very charismatic, so I think this is a word that we are comfortable with in our circles. We could talk about it as a portal, <laughs> a portal to the transcendent idea, the physical incarnation of spirit. You know, I grew up in a very charismatic culture. I was talking. Um, to Elijah about this. And we would talk all the time about feeling the presence of God in worship. And what were we talking about? We were talking about that somehow, some way, the music that we were creating was doing something in our own heart that opened us up to a God who always was there, right? He's not, he doesn't come and go. His spirit's been poured out on all flesh. In fact, he lives on the inside of us. But we say, I felt the presence of God in that. What are we saying? We're saying that we are making manifest in the story that we're expressing in our art and in lyric, we're making manifest the story of God and makes us aware of who God is. But it's not that just we make manifest, you know, a true picture of God or not. People with their art are making manifest all the time pictures of the gods that they worship. 
So you go back to ancient cultures, right? Let's go back to the ancient Babylonian people. And they had a manifestation of their highest values in the idol of Marduk, right? This was the way that they embodied that. I think in some ways, ancient people were just more honest than we are about the gods that they worship and that we worship. They would just name it, right? We could talk about in ancient Greece, they have this really high value for wisdom. So what do they do? They personify it. They call it Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And then they make a statue that personifies that ideal. Then they put it in a temple and everybody comes and they pay homage to that thing. You know what? It's no different than when somebody in our culture, we just saw this today uh, as the parade was happening. The front of the parade. What was at the very front, front of the parade? There were men holding a, an American flag. And what did so many of the people do as they came? I don't, I don't remember if any music was being played or not, but I saw all these people go like this. Now, were they actually placing their hand over their heart to that physical object? Or, and this is, I'm not bringing this up to get political in any way, but when a football player, an NFL football player, say, doesn't put his hand over his heart during the national anthem and faces the flag, but takes a knee. Why are people upset? They're not upset because it has anything to do with the flag or the song itself, right? They're upset because they feel like this transcendent idea, this meta story of our culture is being disrespected, right? That's what that's really about. It's not about a piece of cloth that's hanging in the stadium. It's not about whoever's singing the song and the notes themselves. It's about how those things are an expression of spirit. So we've got this aesthetic, right? We take this story, we take our values and we go, I wanna put them out there. They're invisible and I wanna make them visible and this is how I'm gonna do them. But it's not just aesthetic that's an expression of our deepest values. It's not just aesthetic that's an expression of the God we worship. It's also our labor. And labor is the human work of adopting or repurposing the natural world that we find ourselves in for individual or community benefit. It's the human exchange of the fruits of our work. It's the formation of ethics and laws that preserve and protect human relationships. And this is all a reflection of spirit. So when we go out, and this is another great example. I mean, I just look around at these buildings here and what you guys do. And uh, staying in Jesse's place, uh, I hadn't seen it since it was redone. I look at that labor and I see a reflection of the God Jesse worships in his very house. He has taken materials from the natural world and now he's, he's worked with those materials. You guys probably worked on them too, just like you worked on, uh, he took us through the new house you guys just finished recently. It's amazing. I mean, my wife and I are walking through, you guys think this is normal. It's not normal. We're walking through like, like dumbfounded at the beauty and the labor, the human relationship that you guys nurture and develop as you work on these things together is a reflection of the deep beliefs you have about what God is like. This is why the biblical prophets in the Old Testament, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Amos, what does Isaiah say? God speaking through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah says, I take no pleasure in the sacrifice of bulls, right? Isaiah chapter one. What do I want? I want justice. 
what was happening in Israel in the Old Testament was though they were expressing in this performance of worship the acts they believed God was requiring, the real reflection of the gods they were worshiping were made manifest in their labor. And the prophets told them, you're worshiping idols because you're not treating your neighbor well. You're taking, care, you're, you're taking advantage of the poor and the vulnerable. This is a clear reflection that you are not worshiping me as true God. You've got idols in your life. And so this deep connection between idolatry and injustice runs throughout the Old Testament. Idolatry and injustice. What happens when we don't actually worship the one true God, when we settle for the created thing above the creator, is that what gets made manifest in the world are the fruits of death. And this is what happened in Israel's story too. Israel's became corrupt. They became a place where people were being manipulated and oppressed. But you know what was also happening outside the walls of the city? People were taking, and Solomon allowed this thing to happen, the, the institution of the high places outside of the walls of the city. There was the worship of Molech, a different God that was happening. And what did Molech require? He required the blood of babies outside of the walls of the city. In the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom, the very place where when Nebuchadnezzar eventually comes to town and sacks the city in 586 BC, the very place they went outside the walls of the city to go kill their children as a sacrifice to this god Molech. When Nebuchadnezzar rolls into town and lays waste to that city, where do all the bodies go to get burned? The Valley of Hinnom. When Jesus talks about hell, all but one or two times, he uses the word Gehenna, which is a transliteration of the Valley of Hinnom. This is the place where the idolatrous worship was made manifest in their labor. And we saw the death and dysfunction. What did it do to human relationships? It severed them. Parents were giving up their kids. What did the aesthetic of that look like? It looked like death. They would literally, and you know, I don't want to scare any of the children in here, so maybe you can put earmuffs on them. <laughs> but there was a bronze statue of Molech in the Valley of Hinnom and the parents would take their babies and they would heat this bronze statue up to scorching hot temperatures and the hands of the statue were molded like this, molded out, two hands, I can't do it with the mic in. And then they would place their babies in the hands of that statue. And then the prophets, these musicians, would beat on drums to drown out the screams of the children on that altar as they died. You know what else that made manifest in their life? Injustice, oppression. The spirit that they were truly serving produced death and destruction in the world and in their life. I wanted to talk about how our aesthetic and our labor are always subordinate to the spirit that we believe, to the meta story, the values that we have. It's always a battle of the gods that are taking place. There's a battle of the gods. This is why, guys, you know, we have a hard time with stories like Samson and the way he, some people might call it, like he suicide bombed that Philistine temple. I mean, that's, I hear some people talk about that. But you got to understand the ancient mind. They're not thinking about like the moral implications of whether or not this guy doing this and killing all the people. What they saw was that Yahweh brought down a temple to a false god. And so the way they are reading that isn't with the same lens. They're reading this story and they're going, God was triumphant over that false god, Dagon. 
So what we are always engaged in, guys, is a battle of the gods. It's happening right now. It happens in our hearts. It happens as we make decisions about, you know, where we're going to go to church, what we're going to do for work, what we're going to watch, the kind of things we're going to create in the world. There's a, there's a competition for our heart. And that competition is very, very serious because the spirit that we make manifest in the world will either lead to the fruits of the spirit or they'll lead to the fruits of death. So I thought it'd be great to talk to a couple, a few people here today and they have very unique domains that they might specialize in. Yeah, they have very unique domains that they specialize in. And I want to talk with them about how they see in the art they do, the labor that they engage with, how they see their deepest values made manifest in their work. So I've asked some of them in advance, uh, and Peter's even relayed the information. So if some of you guys can come up here and grab a seat, we'll do some Q&A here. And I know I'm so thankful you guys have been doing a million other things and taking a nap this afternoon might have been, <laughs> we've pulled you, I pulled you out of a nap, but I'm thankful that you guys are here because each of you, I know you have a way that you have expressed God's story in the domain God has called you to. And it's taken the shape of this particular aesthetic. It's taken the shape in your art. It's taken the shape in the work that you've done. It's taken the shape in the human relationships that you've developed. So I wanted to go through here and, you know, obviously we've got a room full of people here, but we are actually recording a podcast where people can't see you. They don't know who you are. I'd like to just start by maybe each one of you can pass the mic down, you know, introduce yourself, say you know, tell your first last name and, and maybe just a brief summary of kind of like what God's specific calling on your life has been thus far. What you would say the specific domains are that you specialize in. Okay, um, my name is Peter Thiel, and um, I've been involved here since, since the beginning. And uh, I guess for me, uh, everything, just, everything started out as just a, a you know, love of music and a love of the Lord. And it's just grown over time into, um, you know, I guess years of building and obtaining skill in certain, you know, certain certain facets of, of labor and construction and, and craftsman, you know, type projects. Um, and then also the, I would say the, the production and, and, and songwriting and all that stuff has been, has been a part of it. Uh, but I, I think all of that t together, the goal has, has always been to, to, to raise up an altar of worship here and, uh, and to model something that is very unique, that really shines in the, in the arts and in creative expression. And like what Paul was talking about, in the, in the aesthetic and the labor, um, we've, we've had, we put a very high value on those things um, being excellent so that people are attracted not only by, um, by the spirit that they, that's manifested in our lives, but it's like a full sensory overload for a lot of people because they're able to, to experience the, the power of God and the power of, of what he's called this people in this locale to do, um, even through 
what they hear, what they see. And, uh, and even, you know, it's so funny because um, I know Elijah, it's so good having him here. Um, his good buddy, Andy Squires, when he was here, he said, it was, it's, it's funny, but we all went to a, like a potluck thing um, at the lake. And he, do, he just goes, man, I've been to a lot of potlucks in my life. This one had the best food by far, <laughs> and it's kind of that. That's kind of what we. That's what we love about this place is that everything is done in excellence. So, yeah, that's my. Yeah. Well, uh, my name is Elijah Mosley. Um, for a living, I produce records. Um, I started off in music as well, pretty young. Um, I was didn't know my father after eight years old when my parents separated so uh my mother who has i have three brothers so you know she was busy making sure we had a place to stay and so she couldn't keep an eye on us enough <laughs> and so i uh basically um holed up in my basement in the garage and learned how taught myself how to play bass guitar enough to go start playing music but i had met the lord when i was 12 and, and it just kind of, I don't know, made kind of sense. Well, if I'm going to play music, I might as well tell people about, like, how I see things. I, met, I didn't meet him at a church. I met him because he told me who he was. And so I was like, hey, let's, let's go do that. And then it didn't dawn on me to go to churches to play music. We just went to clubs. So that's what we did. I toured in a Christian punk rock band for maybe five or six years preaching the gospel to people who were half-baked or, <laughs> or strung out and they're throwing cigarettes at us or beer bottles. Like half of them in the back room throwing beer bottles at the other half right up front, slobbering on the front of the stage, accepting Christ. And that's how I got to know what the presence of the Lord looked like was by watching him kind of like wreck people in a bar or a converted strip club. It was really, really weird teenage years. And then I got married young. Um, I've been married for 17 years. I got three kids. My beautiful wife's not here to, um, because school starts next week, and so she's at home prepping all that stuff. And um, when I got married, it just dawned on me really quickly that playing punk rock music was not going to support a family. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's weird is, you know, this was about the time, you remember worship music wasn't like a big thing for a while. You remember, I mean, there's always been worship music, but there, like worship music wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't the commercial industry. So I was into music music. Like I'm not a, I don't believe in the difference between secular and Christian music. We can talk about that later, but like, I don't believe there's such thing. I think there's music and then there's believers and and it's just what it is but um you know there was just this thing that happened in 2000s where there was this explosion of of what was considered corporate worship and the, i'm going to be really honest with you most of the music just bored me to tears i'm like i don't i don't understand like why everyone really likes this or but What's interesting about it was that the concept of lifting Christ up um, really resonated with me, like, like more so than the idea of evangelism, which was something that I think we're all taught. And then it dawned on me 
that like the revival everyone was looking for the like this idea of like people getting excited about the Lord again and coming to him in droves reminded me of the idea of of like well when he's lifted up he draws all men to him and I started understanding well man worship is the new evangelism it's like when we make manifest through our expression who we love in theory it it brings out the highest ideals of who we love and he'll draw people to him. We don't have to go out there and like hand out tracks. I mean, we, we do, we got to tell people about them, but it's not like, it, it's a really powerful, it's like the atom bomb of evangelism, you know what I mean? But what I noticed about it was that no one knew how to capture it. So I said, well, fine. So I, <laughs> I had a basement I couldn't stand up in, <laughs> in, in my small house, me and my wife. And we took like literally, you know, the, all the money we had and we like bought a little standalone hard disk recorder and started recording bands and and people heard them and and we're like well actually we recorded ourselves like this awful 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 recording that i hope never surfaces and <laughs> and someone actually it was andy squires heard it and he was like he was like man you record me a record I'll give you $4,000, which was like retire in the Cayman Island money for me, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, $4,000? Oh my gosh. So I like spent a month, I quit my job and spent a month working on this record in the basement. I think he paid me 1000 too, which is really funny. <laughs> and anyway, so we, I, and from there, I started realizing that a certain calling, not the only calling in my life, my first and highest calling is me as a father and a husband, of course. Um, but, you know, as a practical calling, I found myself shepherding and fighting for artists and trying to call out using a prophetic gift the Lord had given me to be able to say, don't be afraid to chase the genuine thing. Don't be afraid to go after this because the more you go after this, the closer you are to God. And the more you do that, the more you lift him up. He'll draw things. Uh, to them. I mean, I would just want to throw out that right there is what I'm talking about with a battle of the gods. Because what you're seeing is a god of fear that's ruling and reigning over someone's psyche and keeping them from making the true picture of God made manifest in their, their, their creativity. And what you're doing is you're calling that thing out, right? You're calling that thing out. I just had to jump in there because yeah, that's, that's really what I see. When I talk about a battle of the gods, I don't want to think like, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not talking like a Marvel Cinematic Universe sort of thing. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, did I cut you off, Elijah? Or are you no, ready to no, pass no. the? Yeah. I was saying I probably spent too much explaining that. So, no. Um, for those that can't see, Elijah's next to me, and it's Matthew McConaughey is actually what he looks like. If you're if if you're wondering what he looks like, yeah, I just need a little bit bigger chin. Um, my name is Chris Dupre. Um, I'm older than almost everybody here. And uh, I share gray hair with, with somebody else here. We'll talk in a second. Um, it, it's, it's really funny. What, what I did, I've been a milkman. I worked in a bank. I spent five years assisting in surgery and wanted to go into that full time. I ended up leaving that to go become a teacher, junior high teacher. Um, I have done a hodgepodge. I literally used to cut hair because my father-in-law owned a salon, so I cut hair for a year. I could do yours real nice. 
<laughs> I won't even look at Leonard. <laughs> and, but I got saved in 73 and started, uh, I, was, I was on my way to a life of athletics and, and I was good. And I was rated in the top two or three high school track athletes, uh, played pro soccer for a while. Headed that way, got injured. And while my foot was up, somebody handed me a guitar and said, since you can't move, you might as well learn to play. So I started playing, got saved shortly thereafter, and back in the early 70s when you played guitar, you were on the worship team, even if you were a drug addict or a drug dealer, it didn't really matter back then. The criteria for being on the worship team, can you play an instrument and are you breathing? Those were the criteria. And so I was breathing and I could barely play, but I, I played and I just realized that <clears throat> when I began to do some, a simple thing of a trade that I could do fairly well, God showed up and did things far beyond what I could have imagined. Um, and then you partner with other people in a, in a community, in, in, in that same setting, who have the same passion, and your passion added to theirs is like fuel onto a fire. And so uh, I've been doing a number of different things, but all through my life, really what I've been is a worshiper who does stuff. And I don't really care. I, I left as uh, the worship pastor in Kansas City with, with Mike Bickle for years, and, it's, and on Sunday nights, he and I started this little thing, Harp and Bowl. It's just the two of us that turned into this International House of Prayer thing, but we were just doing it on Sunday nights just because this is what we do, and helped build it, and, and was there the first five years, and the Lord said, take your shadow and go away. So I moved to Nashville. People thought I was crazy because I had reached an apex of something. Yeah. By I'd reached an apex of nothing. I'm I'm a son. That's who I am. And to, so what did I do? I had to support my family. So I I went to school for two weeks and became a real estate agent, and went on the road and did worship and sold real estate in Nashville. <laughs> and people thought I was absolutely crazy, and I was having the time of my life because I was exactly where God wants me to do. Because I'm not what I do. I who I am. I'm who I'm called to be because of Him. So for me, uh, I, I don't believe in this. I know there's a Christian culture, but the culture is where I bring it. And so if I either, one, one thing I can let culture dictate who I am, or I can dictate what culture becomes where I am. And so that's been my heart's desire. And so right now I, I was associate pastor for church in Pennsylvania. My assignment was there for, for a bit. It's ended. It's all ended good. We're all, it's, it's great. But what I'm now invited into and doing, and I just turned 65 in July, and I'm now doing what I've been in my heart to do for years and years, which is um, I'm writing books, I'm screenplays, and I'm working with people in California to turn um, books into movies and to, to create things that, that young people, uh, all ages, can grab a hold and find themselves in it and find answers to their questions because of what they read and because of what they see. So that's, that's what I'm doing now. Wow. Uh, I'm Wendell Danielson. I've been a part of the church here in Ottertail for 20 years or more. Uh, and so I've, I'm a tradesman, uh, carpentry and concrete work which uh, I feel a little bizarre being up here with all the musicians, but in, a, in another way, it's, it's, I, I mean, I've, I feel the same as that 
it's just a part of building the church and encouraging. We try to do those things, and we're bad at it. <laughs> okay, there's, there's no upper level. We have to try. I try to do what you do, and I can't, so I love you. Thank I gotta, you. I got to have my kids play the music on the phone for me now, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, what's really hard for some is, is easy for me, and what's easy for you guys is I can't even think that way. Um, but it's a really cool thing as far as um, I've actually been trying to narrow this in. Like, what is it that I do? You know, it's you know, because carpentry's vague as far as um, it's vague in what it is technically, but it's also vague in in um, in how good you are at it. You know, and uh, so I, I'm more of a craftsman, and that I, you know, I'm getting to where I'm pretty good at different parts of it, but the value that I like to bring is, um, is in creating the space where uh, the memories of your family are made, uh, creating the space that you wake up in in the morning and, and uh, maybe have that experience with the Lord, with your coffee and your Bible. Um, you know, even like this place, you know, creating the space where uh, corporate um moments happen and um, you know and some I've, I don't know just recently somebody was here and they experienced the Lord and they um, was telling me about how like uh, it, it he said you know he's like it saved my life finding this place um, and I said well that's why we do it that's why we build it and um so yeah, so I try and take those in the, you know, with the spirit of what we believe and hold to be valuable, um, like you say, and then we uh, put that into our, our labor, you know, and, and beautifying space and um, yeah, so it's, I also on, on, one, on another side of it, I'm really into uh, salvage materials, you know, which is a... a a good Christian perspective in that, you know, we, we look at something and we... Flesh that out some more. Yeah, we look at something and we say, no, it, it can't be done with. There's, there's value still there. There's beauty still there. Um, you know, when you're, young, when you're young and you have no money and all those, you know, you're, you're, actually, like, you're actually like, you're like, I see value in there and I can, it's something that it, is accessible to me and I can make it into something, you know, and, you know, so you add uh, 15 or 20 years onto that and now you have, I have warehouses full of materials that, that I can make into, you know, projects and space and, yeah. So, yeah, I'm excited to be here with you all. I just woke up. <laughs> this is just kind of deep for me. <laughs> um, but I, um, see, I, I've been doing music for about 63 years, I guess. Uh, Le oh, my name's Leonard Jones. And, um, and I, 
so I got my first instrument when I was four, so I'm 67 now, and I'll be 68 this year. And uh, I got saved in 71, um, 72, somewhere in that neighborhood. I had just gotten um, out of the Air Force in Germany, and I came back to the United States, and uh, I got witness to, like, create, it was during the Jesus movement, and you couldn't, you couldn't go anywhere without getting witnessed to. <laughs> And um, so I decided to go to this little church that was maybe a third the size of this room that, that had like 200 hippies in it, just like me, surfers, hippies. And, uh, and I just decided, well, if this is true, I want to find out. And I went to this place, and after like six months of sitting in services and reading the Bible, just like you'd, you'd have thought I was a Christian, I was just reading the Bible, and I thought, wow, this is, this is really true. And, uh, but the one thing I didn't like about the church was the, the quality of the music and the quality of the songs. And most of the places, I still don't like it. You know, and I look, I look at it, and to me, our ultimate fight is the love of money. I mean, it really is. Uh, it's like, okay, uh, you know, what, what does the church value as far as worship? Uh, no, I, I put two different things. Music and worship are, are in two separate categories for me. Because uh, you can play worship music and not be worshiping. You can play not worship music and be worshiping. So it just doesn't, it doesn't you know. But... I think when you add really creative and really awesome worship with, along with, with, uh, with worship, uh, that, that, and I've seen it, I have seen the presence of God come in physically uh, doing this. And, um, and, you know, there's an old saying I heard that, you know, uh, jazz musicians are play a million chords in front of three people. And rock musicians play three chords in front of a million people. <laughs> and you can almost say the same thing about worship. The, the higher level songs and stuff that you, you create, a lot of times your audience shrinks. So if you loved money, you'd want, you wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't want creative, crazy, powerful stuff, you know, to, to get out there because you're not going to make any money at it. What you want to do is you want to play three or four chord songs that anybody in any church can play because, and I mean, I'm just, just giving my, this is my bad side. <laughs> because, because pastors, they, don't, they really don't care about that. You know, what they want is they want to get the people in. How do they get the people in? Well, by the by the musicians. Well, how do you get musicians to play this music? Make it dog simple. Yeah. You know, and so if it, you play really simple stuff, you know, that uh, anybody they can play, then they don't have to pay the musicians. Love of money. Again. You know, so, I mean, I know churches, and you know these churches, they do not pay their musicians. 
they pay their lawyers and they pay the people that clean the bathrooms, but they don't pay them because the musicians just have this love of music in their heart and they just want to get it out there in front of people. You know, so my fight with, I, I run a worship school and um, I've been, most of the, I had this worship school at Morningstar for 20 years and um, many of the worship people that you listen to came through that worship school. Um, and you know, and to me, it, they're the, they're the best that are out there, actually, in my opinion. Uh, and but I am not satisfied. I still have not heard the created creative worship that I want to hear. These guys have it, yeah. you know. Uh, but what I'm looking for now is students to come to the school that I can somehow shape into like really creative, knowledgeable worshipers of God that that have longevity. I mean, you know, there's not too many people 67 years old that are still doing worship, you know, and, and being creative. And part of that is because of my education. You know, I about... 47, 46 years ago, I picked up a very famous Christian musician at an airport and uh, to take him to a concert of about two or 3,000 people. And he said, hey, what, do you want, what are you doing with your life? And I said, well, I'm, I felt like the Lord, I'm going to go to school, to, work, to um, music school, because I really want to have, I want to give to the Lord the very best music he's ever heard. And, uh, and and this very, if I told, most of you people would know who this person is. If uh, The older people would know who he is. And uh, he said, man, do not do that. He said, you're wasting your time. Jesus will be back before you can even get out of college. Wow. You know, and he said, just get out there and do it, man. You know, and I, I thought, that doesn't make any sense. So I went through four years of music school. And I learned all these different styles of music and all these different instruments and stuff like that, you know. And I'm still doing it, and I plan to be doing it up into my 80s and 90s, you know. And so, um, but you really have got to, it, you have got to, to follow God, I believe you have got to get the love of, I mean, love of money out of your life. Mm. You know, that way, you know, if, uh, you just do what God tells you to do. If you make some money at it, fine. You know, but if you don't, I mean, I have just as, most of my, my best worship time is not with you guys. Yeah. You know, it's with me or, you know, or, or with a, a band where there's nobody around. You know, so that's me anyway. You, I'm, if you don't mind, Leonard, I know you just woke up, but you half asleep is better than most of us fully awake here. <laughs> but I want to, you've brought up a few things that I see as being like invisible values that you're searching to make manifest in the world. And you've talked about something, the love of money. The ancients had a word for it. They had a God for it and it was mammon, right? right? And so what you're talking about still here is a battle of the gods in a sense that there is a spirit of mammon that you think is competing for true affection, for competing for the true, true devotion. And yet I hear something you've said, and I picked it up the first time. You know, I talked already about like, you know, oh yeah, like God arise was a, but one of the most transformative moments in my life, I was a freshman in college. 
and we had been doing worship at our church. We just got the weird idea one day. This is like pre-internet days, so we were really detached from anything else in the world and just thought, well, wouldn't God want to hear our own song? And we would start, we'd gather people after church and we would just sit, I mean, it was really basic. We were doing three chords, but we were just going around singing whatever came into our heads. And we just thought, this is so weird and so strange. Um, and then somebody hands us, they, they had saw Jason Upton and they handed me the CD. You check this out. And he's coming back to town. I walk into this concert event. I still don't know what you call what Jason does. Um, walk in, it's like in a Presbyterian church. And I walk in, I was a little bit late and there he's singing this song. We wait upon you, wait for your power. They did the song for 25 minutes. I didn't know it was a Morning Star song. And eventually, 25 minutes into the song, even so, Lord, come, Lord, come. And this room full of people that were just like this, 20 minutes into the song, were like, ah, like it just ripped. And that left such an impression on me. And later, somebody at my church handed me this you know, this, this Morningstar CD, I think it was Braveheart. I was like, well, I like the Braveheart movie. I'm going to listen to this. And I heard something on there that I hadn't heard. And I had already been playing guitar in church for years already, doing church music in a charismatic context. I hadn't heard anything like that before. And so this is a question I've been waiting to ask you for like 17 years, (laughs) is what is it about God what is it that you saw in God that you go, I have to somehow, you said creativity over and over again. It's an idea. It's not visible yet until it takes an expression in a song or in the building of a table. What is it about God that you believed so strongly that pushed you? Even, it would be a lot easier for you to have just, you're a virtuoso musician that you could put that stuff aside and go, I can just take a paycheck. You fought for this thing for decades when it probably wasn't easy. It probably still isn't easy to do because you believe something about God that you're trying to make manifest in the world. I'm putting you on the spot right after a nap, but what is it? I mean, what do you see that you go, God, like, God is deserving of this creativity or I see this side in him that I'm trying to show, towards, show the world in my art and I'm not gonna settle until that, that spirit is made manifest? Uh, well, I, I kind of sum up what I believe in, about my music and, and, and my, my worship to God is when, when David um, came to this guy and, and he said, I, uh, I want to I wanna buy some stuff to make sacrifice to God. You know, and, uh, and he said, no, I'll give it to you. You know, and he, and David said, "No way." He said, "I will not offer to God what doesn't cost me anything." You know, and I believe, you know, it's one thing when, you know, when you give like, uh, you know, if you're really poor and and, uh, you know, and the Lord says, "Give me everything you've got," and you go and you got like fifty bucks, and you give him fifty bucks, you know, and. Uh, and then there's another thing is you've been, and you've, you worked hard for that money, you know, but there's another thing. If Let's say you have $500 million and the Lord says, give me everything you've got. I mean, I don't know about you. But some people say, oh, well, it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. <laughs> $500 million could change a city. $50 can't, you know, 
And so, and usually $500 million has come through all kinds of other, you know, it's a big deal. And so, you know, one person can give, you know, their 50 bucks to the Lord. I'm out to give like 500 million, you know, and, and I've, I just ran into a guy the other day and he said, and, uh, and he said, you know what, your, your worship is the only worship that ever touches me. You're, the songs, the things that you create is the only thing. And I'm thinking that's awesome because, you know, that guy would not be touched by anything else. He, could, he would not be able to enter in, you know, to, uh, by anything else but what I've created. So I'm not after, you know, I'm really not after huge. I mean, some, I've played in front of big crowds and stuff, but that's not where, you know, I love doing like home churches. I love, you know, the church I'm... I just moved to a church in Ohio. We have like, our, a big Sunday's 40 people, yeah. you know? And so, uh, but where my, my, my sacrifice is in the school that I'm starting there, you know, it's like, I'm looking for people that I can pour into and, and try to give that same ideal, you know, to, uh, I don't know, I just, I love, Nothing touches me like a well-done piece of art. You know, I don't, like, uh, I remember when I first, I came back, I came to work at PTL with Jim Baker years ago. And, um, and I'm sitting there, uh, you know, most of the stuff was just so weird, you know. But this one girl, she got out and danced before the Lord one time. I mean, she was, she did it from, I mean, she was hired. And man, when she did these, I mean, she was doing these pirouettes and then she would just and do this and come down and not fall. As soon as she did that, I just started crying. You know, it was like, oh my God, you know, or, or if I look at a piece of art, you know, and I just go, and it doesn't matter what it is. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a, relig- a lion religious thing. You know, uh, and, and I a lot of times I'll, it'll bring tears to my eyes when I hear a song, you know, whether whether if it's about God or not, if it's a symphony or or anything like that, it, it brings me. And to me, it's like uh, like you said, you know, the you know, the worship, uh, you know, I, I, I believe that worship is a really important thing, you know, in the evangelical tool. But I think sometimes we get kind of superstitious about things and, and we think that things are happening that aren't, you know, uh, I mean, people just, you know, need, you know, one-on-one gospel, you know, in my opinion, that, that to me, that works best, you know, as far as getting, you know, people saved. Uh, and I'm, I probably didn't answer your question. I don't know if I did. Did I answer your question? <laughs> I mean, I guess what I hear you saying is you, you think, You've got such a high view of God's beauty that you think it's worth expressing. Yeah. And like you want to incarnate that. You want that beauty of God. And that's a traditional, you know, you go back to even medieval theology and they would talk about these transcendentals, beauty, truth, and goodness. These are like the doorways to, to seeing God. And at the end of all of them, it should lead us to the source of all truth, good and beauty and goodness. And so when you see something beautiful, I think your response of worship is what all beauty is supposed to create in us is this response. And to not settle for the created thing, and this is the 
delineation, I think, between authentic worship and idolatry is we can see a beautiful piece of art and if we settle for the art, if we settle for the statue of Molech or Marduk, we are settling for a created thing above the creator and it's dysfunctional. You know, if that beautiful piece of music, if you saw a film or like you were saying, just someone dancing, right? There's no lyrics attached. I think the Christian, especially in evangelical settings, we have said that the way God is made manifest, this goes all the way back to the Reformation, is through ideas and words, right? So the way that church has changed over the centuries, they used to call it in the first two centuries, what they called church was the love feast. And people would gather together They'd have scripture. At the end, it was a big potluck, right? And there'd be singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs that would happen there too. The movement in the Reformation put the text at the center of the scriptures, which they were trying to combat some of the stuff that was happening in the Catholic church and going, we need to return to the source because we've got all of this crap that's been introduced into, into Christian worship. So it's the text, it's the text, it's the text, it's the word, it's the word, it's the word. Uh, even to the point where guys like Calvin had pretty, you know, the church had had this rich history and tradition of the arts. But why isn't that the case in Protestant streams as much as it is been in Catholic and Orthodox streams? Well, for somewhere along the way, the idea came about that the imagination is a tool of the devil because we're fallen, right? Instead, the church had said, no, the imagination is God's playground. It's where he communicates beauty. And so when I hear something like the, the song you did last night where you're doing like finger style stuff on the acoustic guitar and somehow singing at the same time, I, part of me goes, I don't even care what he has to say. <laughs> In the, like the, the words, because there's beauty that's stirring up my appetite and reminding me that right here, what's in front of me isn't all that there is. There's transcendence beyond this. There is a God who's beyond this and it's calling me out of that. And I think good pieces of art and beauty do that. And I think, I mean, I think that's part of the legacy that you're carrying. And it's, I mean, people that are listening to this, I just want to, if you're in an evangelical setting, there's a good chance none of the worship music that you're listening to hasn't been influenced by one of these two guys up here, probably, <laughs> you know, in Leonard and Chris and what's happened at, at places like Morningstar at IHOP. I mean, it's, all, it's, it's started with people, with people like you guys. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, maybe can we hand it over to Chris? Cause Chris, I'm interested when you guys started doing this thing that you call harp and bowl, what sort of, you have this value, you have this story about God that you guys are trying to express in this unique way of expressing worship. I mean, you know, probably didn't think much of it at the time, but it was very different it's not what you do today where you got a couple verses and a chorus and then you do a big building bridge and then we go home. Um, what were you guys trying to do with that? What story of God were you trying to tell when in those early days you gathered and you started doing this thing called harp and bowl? Well, that's a good question. Um, really, to be, just to be honest, we weren't trying to do anything. We There was this thought this brother is a wonderful guy that just said, you know, Revelation says they came with a harp and a bowl. That sounds like they came before the Lord with harp being music, and it does say a bowl is the, the, the prayers of the saints. It's filled with, with the prayers of the saints. So why not just, because prayer meetings, to be honest with you, I got saved in 73, and the prayer meetings that I went to were 
what I call rock pile permeatings. You just bang the rock and you hope the thing breaks open sooner or later and somebody comes up and takes the sledgehammer from you and they bang away and and so my introduction I, I had I came out of one year college I was stoned or drunk every day of the year not except for one day I made a pact with another friend and we we got wasted every day I'm not proud of it but that was the reality and I came home my my brain I could not go to school I couldn't think and so I, I said yes to Jesus, and I went to a prayer meeting, and it was the worst thing ever to introduce someone to. You know, I had this friend Paul that Paul he talked normally, and and then when he got on the microphone to pray, oh Father, we thank thee for thy beauty, and I was like, what the heck happened to Paul? And you know, he just <laughs> Paul went away into some religious something or other, and this little old lady that never talked, and always whispered, and she got on the mic and she screamed the entire prayer. And I just remember thinking, I hate prayer meetings. And those were our prayer meetings. And then, you know, I ended up getting married. I left and, and went to another church and it was the same kind of prayer meeting, only someone played music in the background or played chords or something and that was it. And so when we were kind of together, um, the idea of, of worshiping and then out of worship comes thoughts of God, comes thoughts toward him. And this is how it, this is the answer to your question. And as I'm thinking about him, as I'm loving him, I start to get the thoughts of God, and I want to pray the prayers that are on his heart. Prayers that he, not that God is waiting to pray these prayers. God can do anything he wants. But he'll put, when I, when I get his heart, then I see the weight of his heart or the motive and his desire. And so it's just praying his desire. So it was just a really easy, natural kind of a thing where we're in the middle of worship, we're communing. Hopefully we're in the middle of worship and not going, you know, memorizing the words somebody else wrote a thousand miles away. Most worship is singing words that somebody wrote that we don't even know. And we're thinking about the football game that starts at one and we're telling our kid to be quiet next to us, and that is to us our worship experience. Um, but if, if I can, in my worship, elevate my heart and my mind to who he is, connect with him, in the midst of that connection, I actually get a, a piece of his heart. Then I pull it in, and then that's where the prayer comes. So it's just a very natural kind of thing. I'll just just honestly and, and make sure that this doesn't go out. <laughs> It's too late. But, but it, I know, I know. It's so easy to take something authentic and natural and turn it into a system. And even worship and intercession can be turned into a system to the point where you don't even, you're not connecting with worship and you're not connecting with the intercession. And I've seen it happen. I've been in the middle of it. I pray that that's not the case. I love the folks that are there um, but uh, in Kansas City. Um, but the, it, it has to be, I, I need a, a, a real relationship with a person. Um, Leonard and I were talking, and the idea is of friendship. Friendship can be, hey, he's my buddy. But if I don't get anything reciprocal from that friend, it's not a friend. It's acquaintance who knows me. And I may want relationship, but if it doesn't come back, it's not a real authentic friendship. The same thing with God. Authenticity and friendship is reciprocal, so therefore it's not just me spewing worship. It's, it's, I, I'm worshiping to connect to a heart, to see a face, to love a man, to hear his heart, to pray his prayers, and just let that circle continue. I think the song that probably you wrote that most people are familiar with, Dance With Me, yeah. 
I hear in that that you are capturing this value that perhaps the church has lost, which is authentic intimacy, intimate, that you're saying something about God, that God desires this. And that is in stark contrast to maybe pictures of God that people have had that have grown up in the church. In a way, you're, you're warring against other idols, even though it's a nice six, eight, you know, you could dance with your daughter, you know, to it, that there is a collision of ideas there. It brushes up against, especially, you know, to be honest, like that level of intimacy can be frightening to men as they sing it, a song oh, like oh, that. I, there, there was a guy, I won't say who he was, but uh, my, my compatriot in Kansas City at the time was David Roos, and David would, you know, would, would write these songs, and I would write these songs, and they were intimate songs, and he, went, he would go on the radio, he's on the radio every week, um, and he would just blast us about about the kinds of songs that we were writing and and that the the uh, impure motives that that were brought in and the intimacy was was of the devil et cetera et cetera et cetera um, and that, that never bothered me because I know the the genesis of the songs themselves and I know what they're about right. but to me that kind of thinking is every other religion is I go to God um, but this is the one where he comes to me this is the one where he initiates. He initiates the action. He initiates the sacrifice. He initi initiates the, the affection. First uh, John four nineteen. I love because he first loves me. And so the word that the, the better a better translation is my ability to love comes from the fact I'm loved. Yeah. Yeah. That's the translation. I can love because I'm first loved. And so if I if yeah. if I don't respond to to intimacy, then I don't see intimacy. Therefore, I live my life to create a false relationship of uh, being the one that initiates instead of being the one that receives. And I flip Christianity upside down. Yeah. I turn it into a Christian religion and everything I do. And after a while, I burn out and I wonder why I even got started in the first place. So what you're saying is the contrast between the, the true Christian narrative yes. and that of paganism. The pagan stories were the gods need you to bring your kids. They yes. need this. They need the next thing from you. You say, no, 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 the, 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 the truth is this, and you invert that story. And now, I think one of the beautiful things that happens is all of these things are worship, um, whether they are expressions in musical form or they're, I want to talk to Wendell next, expressions in labor and working with our hands and doing business justly, that all of these things, as they tell that different story about God, make an opportunity for other people to see that, have their incorrect spirit that they've been following trashed and replaced with a true picture of God. It flows out in their work, in the art that they create. Someone else sees that. And I think that's a little bit maybe, Elijah, I'll come, I want to come to you in a second, where you're saying, like, you realized that there was an evangelism inherent in authentic worship. And what, whether that's building a table, writing a song with you know, three or four time signature changes in it. You know, communicating something in a church context that might be controversial about the nature and character of God. All of these things are inherently evangelistic. It means they're all good news. And it's the presentation of the good news in our life that creates metanoia, which is repentance, allows people to see God rightly. It allows them to then express that. And it's this, this wonderful cyclical event, but it just, it starts with, and I want to ask you, Wendell, about your work, because you work with your hands in a way that the rest of us, I think, are, many of us are jealous about. Um, 
what got you into that? Maybe it was just, this feels like it's the only thing that I'm good at. You know, sometimes it feels like that. when we That's why we choose a particular vocation. But what happens to you as you're working with your hands on what is art? There is an aesthetic component to what you create, Wendell. And what are you trying to tell about God with your work? Yeah, it's, I don't know that I've thought about it like that. I understand the premise, um, but I don't know that I've thought about it like that until recently, probably until we, uh, a few weeks ago when I was listening to your podcast about the God in culture. Um, but yeah, because he always works on us, doesn't he? Like that's, you know, like, uh, like you're saying, you know, he loved me first. He saw value in me first. John 15 says that um, uh, I didn't, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. So he came and saw value in me before, you know, it wasn't something I did. You know what I'm saying? So I, I see that. I see that part of God that he, and then in um, Genesis, it's his face is brooding over the water. He's actively looking for something to create. I don't, that's the way I see him. And that um, he's, he's always looking for opportunity. You know, it's like, um, I'm, I kind of enjoy housing, uh, real estate. You know, I always like look at real estate listings, you know, like, man, that's something. But I always look for the ugly ones and the weird ones and the, you know what I mean? probably learned that from Pete, but, um, but it's an opportunity to, um, to take something that maybe something else, nobody else could see it, you know, and, um, yeah, so I think the, if it was, if you could strip it down and say, okay, what's the, what's the attribute of God that, that I'm trying to do is that, um, Well, one is, one is, um, I don't think that there's much that's not salvageable. Yeah. And then the other is um, preconceived idea. Like, maybe it's, maybe it doesn't have to be what you think it is. You know? It's like we... We have this idea of what our calling should look like or, you know, because of our upbringing, family of origin, experiences in life, then we come to know the Lord and sometimes we want to, we basically, we're projecting what we, what, what we perceive and we want to fit ourselves into a mold, you know, or, man, I grew up on Leonard's music, I got to be like him, you know? And um, what's cool is, like, maybe, maybe, maybe it doesn't have to be what it looks like. Maybe it can be reformed into something else. Um, so I do a lot with salvage materials and um, alternative use. You take something that was something else, and now I'm using, you know, I'm making it into a, 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 an art piece of furniture, a table. I just recently made a... Um, 
a 120-inch table, which is 10 foot long, so it seats uh, quite a few people, out of what used to be a grain elevator, you know, and which is a really cool story because the, the gentleman that I made it for, his dad built the building and he was seven years old playing in the bottom of the building while they were building it. So you take a piece of family history um, that's connected to all the memories that he had with his dad and now he's built through the skill set that I've developed. I can make a piece of furniture that his grandchildren sit at and he tells the stories yeah. of the family legacy. If that's not evangelism, I don't know what, <laughs> what is. That's good news. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's really been the last few years that I've really come to think about that. Like, what is it? Because I used to think it was just the skill. You know what I mean? It's, well, I'm just skilled labor. But it's the service is you're, you're, taking, you're taking something that's valuable but maybe doesn't fit in anymore and you're reforming it into something that'll, you know, like you say, it'll, it'll pass, it'll, it'll connect three or four generations in a beautiful aesthetic way, you know, functional. One of the things I thought about, even as you were saying that, was I, I pictured the scene of Zacchaeus up in that tree and Christ seeing the value in this guy that would have been, in his culture, uh, very unvaluable. I mean, he was rich in that sense, but people frowned upon this short tax collector who worked for the bad guys. Christ sees value in him, invites himself over to his house. I mean, you stand, you look at these materials from these dilapidated barns, you know, and you're seeing something that isn't there. And you guys are transforming it and you're building it into these places that you're raising your kids in and, and helping people commune with God. It's, it's, it's worship. Yeah, I really do. I, I um, you know, in my shop, I, I actually enjoy it quite a bit just being by myself, listening to music or a podcast. Or to be honest, I'll, I'll go days and maybe even weeks without listening to anything. And it's just the thoughts and the, you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, you guys were talking, we were talking about a lot of these guys aren't from up here and they don't, they can't understand the weather that we have, the winters. But the winters are a season for me where I don't, I can just create because there's nothing else to do. There's no distraction. You can't go outside. And uh, so it's kind of fun that way. And then you're just, yeah, it's kind of like a version of my time with the Lord. Elijah, um, when you're sitting in the studio with an artist, you're sitting in the studio with somebody that is attempting to express and try to make manifest their own picture of God, what sort of pastoral work are you actually doing in that studio to perhaps call that thing out or maybe to correct a false idea? Do you have any specific examples? Maybe you don't have to use the names of people that have been in there, but I'm curious because I've heard, I've heard stories about you as a, actually being a pastor in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
if I'm a, if I'm that type of pastor, I'm the most offensive pastor you've ever met in your life. So I gave up on trying to replace the Holy Spirit a long time ago. Uh, to the point of evangelism, it sounds like I'm disagreeing, but I agree with Leonard and Chris a thousand percent. It's, to me, how you communicate directly, one-on-one, -on -one, or whether it's through creating a space in worship to introduce people to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gets people, introduces them, right? It's not us. It's we're just trying, we're flapping around like little fish out of water, it's the Holy Spirit that does this work. We all agree on this. In some ways, some people respond to talking, and some people respond to music, because music is this amazing language. And a long time ago, one of the main things I try to get across to specially worshipers in the studio is that you do not bottle the Holy Spirit and then ship it across time and space and then uncork it the best you can hope for. Because the recording process is an absolutely artificial process. Like, anyone's ever told you, oh, we're going to have, like, an organic recording. We're going to do it live because that, that way it captures the real thing. That's like that Simpsons episode where, like, Homer goes to Hollywood and, you know, they've got a, a camera there and, you know, they've got a dog on stage and it calls for a horse. He's like, why is there a horse? Or why is there a dog? And he's like, well, because everyone knows you use a dog to look like a horse on camera, you know? And, it, <laughs> and, and, and the recording process is that. You are bifurcating sound information that's been transduced three times, sometimes at literally 96,000 times per second. And then you're collating it together and translating it into this thing that is supposed to, like literally one-dimensionalizes something that's a th four-dimensional thing happening in real time, and you're supposed to express something. And what I tell people is, you are not bottling this moment. If we were to have a worship service, and I was supposed to I'd capture this thing, and we like get together, and we prepare the songs and everything, we are not taking the Holy Spirit and stuffing him down in a little bottle and being like, get in there, Holy Spirit. We're going to sell you. And so... <laughs> And so we ship you off by the millions to other people, and other people go, oh, vintage otter tail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more Lord, you know. What the best we can hope for is that people who are genuinely pursuing their craft, musicians, craftsmen, pastors, and fathers, creators of community, the best we can do is capture what brings joy to us, ship the representation of that across time and space. And when people uncork that, they're inspired to go back to the source themselves. And so when you say like pastor people, like, I am, I'm not qualified to pastor half the people. Half the people I work with are 10 times more talented um, than I am or 10 times more godly than I am. I just recognize 
that if I just let, you know, like I am like that Elijah the prophet where I'm like, I'm not the one who's going to burn up the altar. Like you guys go dance around all you want. I'm just going to like say, okay, when you're done, we're going to ask the Lord to move in power or whatever. Like I'm going to let him do that part. Um, And so I don't, but to Leonard's point, I mean, I know he got up from a nap, but he said something that I think is, I think it's an exit, I, I really mean this, I really mean this, is maybe it's a little too heavy for this, but I think he touched on it so quick, and I'm like, Leonard goes there, and I like want to follow him. The, money in the church, and specifically when it comes to expressions, whether it be crafts or ideas or whatever, is an existential threat to Christianity. It really is. It is the number one thing. So I'm not like, I'm, I, I, this is going to sound super spiritual or whatever, but I, 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 I keep coming back to this dream I have, and I actually haven't really told that many people about it. So it's actually kind of a little vulnerable for me. Um, so I had this dream. It's so weird. I'm not an Israel mama or anything. I'm not like that hyper spiritual person, but this, I, the Lord speaks to me in dreams and I just, I can't help it. So I had this dream that I was this young kid, I guess, a teenager and Jewish back in the, in the day in, the, in Jesus times. And I had heard of this Jesus teaching and maybe I saw him. I just, you know how you know things in dreams and I'm like inspired by this Jesus guy. And I'm like, I'm coming of working age and I'm like, oh, he represents, he's God on earth and and like he inspires me. And so like, as soon as I get a job, I want to go work in the temple. That's where they go when they worship that God. So I'm going to go and I'm going to work in the temple, right? So as soon as I get old enough, I'm just like, Jones, I'm so excited. I'm going to like be in the temple of the Lord and I'm going to like serve him, whatever. And so I arrive at my table the first day because I got this job working for the money changers, right? And the first day, Jesus himself walks in. I'm like, oh my God, Jesus is here. And he's like, I'm getting this in. It's going to be awesome. And he starts overturning the table that I'm working at. And my heart is just like coming to this realization. Now, he's not condemning me. That's not what I got out of the dream. The, the sense I got out of the dream was everything I thought was really important and like created this space for people to interact with God was not it, you know? And it wrecked me because what I realized in that is that the thing that Christ was saying was, okay, I'll I'll let you guys have a law. You need a written law so that you won't directly listen to my spirit. So, okay, I'll let you have a king because I understand you won't let me be your king directly, okay? I'll let you have this temple, this physical place because I I know you want to build this space for you to interact with me or whatever, but remember, I want to live in you. You're, you're my temple, right? Okay. But the thing that pissed him off to the point where he took the time to go after that was that there was a bunch of dudes. He would even say, you know, you can have your currency. You can have it. I get it. You're like, it's, it's an evil thing to set up, but it's a tool. We exchange value for this little, back then, the idea of a common currency, the Roman currency was a very, very new idea. And 
you know, the, the um, religious people had figured out how to leverage that to its max effects. So here they come up with this law that says, in order to interact with God, in order to worship him, you have to do this law. So here's all the little animals and all this type of stuff that you, you, you get to worship with, okay? And you have to gather from all these different countries all over the place, which have different types of currencies, and you're going to come to this one place, okay? And what these people had done is said, now you're going to exchange your currency into the currency to buy our things, and we're going to get our little piece of it. So what they were saying was, it's okay for you to come and interact in all the ways that we've told you to come and interact and worship the Father, as long as we get our peace in between. And that's what I see happening in Christianity, not just in worship music, worship, uh, music in general is, is my forte. And I have no problem with anybody saying, I'm going to write a song and I'm going to make a million dollars. What I do have a problem with is people who are saying, you have to integrate worship music this way in order to actually interact with God because I get my cut from that part. Okay? I, I know I'm narrowing it down, but I really believe it applies to almost everything. Like when we take something that is just super practical and super normal, like building a house and so, charging people money to do that, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. There's nothing wrong with recording CDs or being an entertainer. There is something wrong with trying to set yourself where it's like, yeah, you can worship God. That's cool as long as I get my cut, you know? Because then you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping mammon at that point. You're saying that is my highest ideal. That is my highest value. And so... When you say pastor, like, I don't see it as pastor. I see myself as a, a fighter. Like, I, I see myself as a person who all these pressures of everything that's practical because there's no money in music and these people have families and they're being told, write a worship hit, write a worship hit, write a worship hit, write a worship hit. I'm not inspired to write a worship Write a worship hit. You know, you just got off tour. You lost $30,000. You know, you're on tour with David Crowder or whatever. Write a worship hit. Your, your wife is upset because you were gone for four weeks straight, and you've got two little kids. Any wives here know how that is? My wife does. You know, like, you're gone working for three weeks, and they're with, like, two other little human beings that don't even speak English yet, you know? And write a worship hit. Do it now. Write a worship hit. What if that's not in your heart right there? What's the, what if that's not what's coming after you? Because the biggest piece of advice I could offer them right now, yeah, I get paid more if you write a worship hit. My royalty checks go up, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Believe me, my royalty checks go up if you write a worship hit. But that's not what's coming out of you. So pastor, no. I just get angry and I'm like, no. The song that's coming out of you right now is not a worship hit. You're processing this thing. You're processing what, like the disappointment of the season. So write about that. And when they do, this is the thing. They tap into the Holy Spirit at that moment because the Holy Spirit is nothing if he's not true. 
So the moment they get honest, they're agreeing with the Holy Spirit. And in that honesty, they start flowing with the creativity, right? And they start writing songs. And then, you know, this amazing thing happens. When they've got it out, when they're just being honest, then because they're honestly in love with the Lord, they start writing honest worship songs. And then someone somewhere is like, I recognize that. That sounds like the voice of my father. That sounds really genuine and honest. Kind of like my daddy. I want to worship him too. Great. And everybody wins because we have copyright law and you can't go out and sell stuff without, you know, you know, it's the way it works. Hey, you know, it's what it is. So I'm not pastoring them. I just, maybe I'm giving them, I'm fighting for them. I'm saying, you don't, I get it. I see in you what you can't see right now because it's so heavy. I get it. There's so, everyone's saying, do it, do it this way. Do it this way. This is the way you make the money. I get it. That's the way it's saying. But I'm saying when it comes specifically to organically discovering worship music that really inspires and transcends, it is not done that way. You have to come back to something. And sometimes that means writing 20 amazing tunes because you want to write 20 amazing tunes and they're worthless for corporate worship publishing, you know? But I'll tell you this. It's a well-known fact that, you know, when John Mark wrote How He Loves, he didn't write that because he was, I'm going to write the next big worship tune. Ask Leonard. Leonard was around one, okay? He was writing that because his friend had died in a car wreck and burned to death on 85. And he needed to process that. Back then, he wasn't as good a songwriter as he was. So it ended up being really simple language that everyone could just kind of jump on. It wasn't bubbly or flourishy, but he meant it. And nobody sings that third verse, though. No one sings it. No. And, and, and you know what? He, you know, it's hindsight being twenty twenty. You know, it's really funny because the third verse of How He Loves, which only appears like on the very, very first um, version that we did like way back in the day, like that third verse, I had to literally paste that verse together. It, there's a whole, you know, I thought about you the day Stephen died and you met me in between my, my breaking. I know that I still love you, God, despite the agony of every breath I'm taking. People want to say that you're cruel and that I'm wasting my time on you. Like, none of those lyrics. What appears is people... <laughs> because when he's singing it, he's processing what he really feels in that moment. So all I, I'm like, keep singing you know, just keep, I'm about to break down, right? Like, because I'm moved by what, what he's saying. And so I'm just like, fine. So I took literally the words that were left over that didn't have him sobbing and pasted them together. And that's the third verse. And of course we cut it when we put it on the, when integrity put it out, because I mean, integrity hasn't, doesn't have any use for a dude sobbing on tape, but, but you know, and I don't blame them. Because even as a, if I were to like be genuinely honest, like as an art, like as an artist, I'm like, nah, I, I, I really didn't. We didn't need to break that fourth wall, as it were. Like you know, I could be critical, but as a person who's like, 
who looks back on things and says, I wouldn't change anything about those seasons, but I wouldn't do it that way again. I adore the honesty of that season. You get what I'm saying? And what I've learned through doing this over and over and over is that I keep looking back at 10 years ago and wishing and just longing to go back to that innocent place over and over. So why would I change now? Why would I just kind of like start doing it different now? If I fell in love with the stuff that I did back then, I hated it when I got done with it, believe me. When you like craft a piece of wood and like, you're like, no, this isn't perfect. Like, oh, I messed this up. There's this nick there. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm so embarrassed. But you just have to put it out and get done. You just got to move on to the next piece. And then 10 years later, you're listening to like, you guys did that, that um, Johnny Helser, uh, whatever. God, if I told you the moment, in, like I, I could tell you how it smelled in the room when that moment happened. Because Leonard was there. That's right. Oh my God, Leonard, you were there. I stuffed him. I stuffed, oh my gosh. I stuffed him. In, we had just moved into our new studio. Okay, I, I'm almost done. Because, okay, we just moved into, okay, a building that the Lord led me to. When he talks about like reclaiming things, we had to move out of our woodshed that I, that was the first place I moved into. I say woodshed, but it was like a wood manufacturing places bigger than this and it was dusty and anyway the neighbor switched switched shifts to third shift so they were sleeping during the day where we were trying to track drums so we had been there for two years and all of a sudden we're getting the cops called on us and he's like I can't sleep with your drumming the problem is is I had Martin Neal in that week in from England and he's Martin Neal's uh, Kevin Prosh's drummer and he's in there, and we have him for two more days, and we have to get these tracks done. And I'm like, I did, I'm, so, I'm so clueless. I'm so clueless. So I was like, I didn't know what to do. So I handed him a, a tub, the cop at the door, a tub of, of earplugs. And I said, here, go get this to him. Which, of course, he didn't take well. <laughs> I'm so clueless. I'm so clueless. Anyway, so let's just say the grace left for that place. And I said, oh, Lord, I don't have a place to record. I love big, open, natural reverb. So I, like, love big spaces. And I didn't have any money. So we were like, what are we going to do? And the Lord told me to go look up and down this river called the South Fork River. And I looked for a month. This is a long river, okay? This was, like, literally 300 miles. And so, like, I looked up. It took me a couple months. And I found this place. It was an old abandoned textile mill. And eventually... Over the years, we took it over, but it was so early in that process that there was still the vault, a concrete vault that used to hold the records from all the mills in that area at the time, okay? It was, used to be the office. And so they had these steel shelves in them that vibrated just even when you talked for whatever reason. But it was the perfect little reverb chamber. It was like sticking them inside a little twin reverb. So... But it was like, on the other side, it would be like saying, hey, Leonard, we're going to have this worship moment, and we're going to, like, put you in the, the shed on the other side of the road. It was literally that detached from what was going on. But what was so amazing about it was that how, when everybody got to that spot, because, you know, you'd run takes, and it just like, oh, I was born to worship, you know, or whatever, like, because you'd rehearse it, and you're kind of looking for that moment. 
you, you get the framework put together and you'd look for that moment, you look for that inspiration and you know you're going to be able to clean it up later, but you're still looking for that core nugget. And we weren't getting it. And finally we were like kind of on a take and I was like, I told Al Sergal, Al Sergal was playing drums on that. And I said, I said, Al, when we get to the end of this thing, I just want you to, I want you to just count out as loud as you can in the room. Because a lot of the guys are in the room, I was like, I want you to count it back in. I want you guys to come back into that, like that moment. And everybody got the memo, Joel and, and Andy and, and, and everybody got the memo. But Johnny didn't get the memo that we we're going to do that. And so he had gotten a word from the Lord that he was going to roll by a line or whatever. And when it got to that, that spot at the very, very end, it's on the extended version. It's not on the, it's not on the other one, but it, like, it just like mulls out into this like epic, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. like, you know, super classic, charismatic, mulling ambience of darkness or whatever. <laughs> anyway, it's a, it goes on for two minutes like that. Two minutes like this because it's, it really happened like this in real time. They're just all kind of like peeling around, and then Al just, okay, I'm gonna go for it, and he just starts yelling. And and back then I used to, I'd, I I would record Johnny's vocals in real time so that I could keep the prophetic parts verbatim. It was kind of a compromised sonic situation, but I didn't care. It was it was the Lord was on it, so let's let's use that. Um, Al counts that off. He's like, what do? And Johnny, I see him on the cameras. I'm like, he, it's, he's surprised by it. Like, Johnny's surprised by it because he didn't know it was coming back in. And, and what's funny is if you listen to the extended version, like, he goes, and they all, like, come, like, back in. And he's like, and that's what we ended up. Like, he's like, you know, like, just freaking out. And that's what we ended up clipping and moving over there and Leonard is back there in this cave just by himself <laughs> in this cave just going crazy in this, so everything you hear you know how it sounds like really verby it's because he's in a room where the, all the shelves are vibrating and I say all of that to say this it's a perfect example to me, of the effect of any craft that you're doing because the Lord has created you to do it, yeah. is that when you do it, even in isolation, what, what, what they would call the atmosphere, yeah. you know, yeah. we were talking about that, how things can get cliche, but things start to vibrate around you and agree with you, you know? Does that make sense? I know that's super charismatic. I know, I know that's super, I'm really not, I'm really kind of frontal lobed here. So, you know. I mean, the, the rocks and the trees cry out. Exactly. Right? I mean, oh, that's great. That's a great story. I'll give it to Peter next. Peter next, I want to wrap up here with you, Peter. Um, because you have, uh, you have your kind of hands in both worlds. And I don't want to bifurcate them. I don't want to separate them because you're a songwriter and you are someone that's taking these values, the story of God, and you're putting pen to paper, you're writing lyrics, you're sitting with the guitar, you're sitting with the guys in the band, you're trying to make that, that invisible thing that you, you, you're trying to bring that into the here and now. But you also, like Wendell, and unlike me, <laughs> you work with your hands in the world too. I mean, you, you're doing 
this work of taking the raw materials of nature and there's an aesthetic to that too of crafting and, and, and working in these buildings and renovation. Um, so what is it about God that you see that, you, that motivates you to go, I got to keep doing this with my life. Like this is what I'm called to do. Um, well, I'll try and, I'll try and go quick. I, uh, I guess there was a, there was a point in my life where I would have been perfectly content to continue, um, touring and, uh, you know, by the, before I was 25, I had about, I'd put about 500,000 miles on the road with my best friends and uh, so, I mean, we literally had been to the moon and back before we were 25 years old. Thousands of concerts and, and worship events. And, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, it was like, I mean, we were, probably, we were probably within a year or two of coming on to a, I would say, a, a part of the scene where we would have been playing you know, some, some really large venues, you know, it was going that direction. And, uh, and all of a sudden it was like the Lord said, I want you to build something in a locale. And it was really hard for me because we were, you know, I'm just, I love to travel I love to meet new people. I'm super, I'm super extroverted. Like I'll go into a, I'll go into a room and, you know, and I, and I, I, I'd really try to, to use my, my memory. So, you know, I'll go into places and meet 30, 40 people and like challenge myself. I'm going to remember everybody's name that I meet in, when I go into this place. And I want to, you know, like, I just want to be around people and, and, and shake hands and hug people and talk and, uh, and convey anything. And so it was hard because that just kind of all reined in. And, uh, and what God did within a matter of probably months was to really instill a, a high value in me for community. Um, for building something with people that I love um, and, and learning how to grow together and be messy with each other and, and to stay together. Like, like I chal- my challenge to, a lot, to people in general, but especially people in the church, is to, to test. And the word says that... Um, talks about the sin of familiarity and uh, I've made a decision I'm a pretty strong-willed person and so this might have come a little bit easier you know to me than it would for for some but I've made a decision to do two things in my life um, to love the people that are close to me unconditionally and and to refuse to be offended those are two two decisions that I made in my life, and uh, and it's really helped me to always look at my close friends and my family as though 
you know, as though the relationship is fresh. And uh, so it's been an amazing thing. But um, so then all of a sudden, all these things started happening. We start building, um, restoring all this old junk. Because in, in 2003, this was a drive-through town. Like if you, if you blinked, there, I mean, you missed Otter Tail. There was nobody on Main Street. It was an old, it was an old rundown um, mechanic shop, and uh, and that was it pretty much. I this yeah. room was filled with tires. Yeah, there were three thousand tires on this property, and this room we're sitting in had six individual rooms with eight-inch thick cork walls. There was a um, elevated cistern behind me. You can still see the concrete inside the that held up a huge water, elevated like water tower inside the building. By the time we did the demolition, which took, took about 10 guys, five weeks, by the time we got done with the demo, we were walking out that door with wheelbarrows, just walking right out that door, 15 feet off the ground. We were walking right out that door onto, onto a pile and dumping wheelbarrows of debris. <laughs> and so a lot of it has come down to back to this idea that there's nothing that is that can't be salvaged and and can't be restored and uh you know like i said that there was a point in my life where i would have been perfectly content to just to just let the momentum that we'd already built carry us onto a a national and an international um stage doing doing music and ministry um but i think what's What's been so awesome for me, and in seeing in, see, in, in seeing the heart of the Lord in all of it, comes comes down to this generational thing. And I know that like a word like sustainability is kind of like it's kind of a buzzword right now in the church. Um, but things that really touch me are things like um, is it St. Peter's Basilica that took 300 years to build. So what, what the people that freak me out are the guys that started that. <laughs> Not the guys that finished it and did all the ornate paintings and, and all of those things, but yeah. the guys that were like, we'll work our whole lives to build the foundation for that building that we never even get to see except for in our, in our imagination. And so I, I see all these things, you know, within the culture as aesthetic, like what we're talking about, and, and the labor. Um, but I guess I, what I try to do is to, I, I want to be really intentional about everything. And one of my favorite things about this building is this, uh, there's a cupola right out here on top of this metal tower. And the metal that's on that tower outside was on the grain elevator that my grandfather owned. Um, and uh, the cupola that's on top of that tower was on a farm that belonged to the guy that was basically holding down the fort on Main Street before we came to this town. He had the only, sh he had a mechanic shop. He's in his mid eighties now. Um, he grew up on a farm south of town somewhere and their barn had that cupola on top of it. And it's an architectural statement. I love cupolas. They're cool. We have them all over. We've got two or three of them on this property and two or three of them at the house. But the reason that one is where it's at 
is so that every morning when Delmer Wiebe rode his bike from his house to his shop on Main Street, he could look up at our building and see the cupola that was on the, on the barn that he grew up on that, you know, from the, from the farm he grew up on as a little kid. And so, like, that's kind of the heart of God that I'm trying to connect with more and more is that, and it's, a, it's, it's probably the most difficult the most difficult one to connect with. Like, because I want to be, I want to travel and do what I do and minister to people and, and push into connection and get close with, closer with my friends and family, my kids, all of that. Um, but it's really, it's really a deep longing of my heart to fall in love with the idea of building something that that's not going to be completed in my lifetime, that I'm not going to, like planting seeds that I don't get to enjoy the fruit of. And, but the beautiful thing about that is there are people that came before me that planted seeds that they didn't get to enjoy the fruit of, and I'm, and I'm enjoying that fruit now. And so it's, it's, it's such a crazy kingdom thing, you know? It's a kingdom thing. And... When, when, when revival breaks out, when God starts doing things in a location, the people that were there for 20 years or 30 years laboring to see that come to pass, they don't get any more, they don't get any more rained on than the people that just moved to that town. You know what I mean? And how do we, how do we reconcile that within ourselves? That like someone can come in to our community, and they get to eat the fruit that from the seeds we planted decades ago, they get to be equally blessed in it, just like the, the story of the vineyard where the men that were hired at the end of the day were paid the same amount as the men that worked the whole day. And it's, it's difficult. It's really difficult because our natural way of thinking is that, hey, man, I laid down my life for this. I, I sacrificed years. Um, I laid down my career. All those types of, of thoughts. And then, and it just doesn't seem fair. <laughs> you know? And so that's kind of been my prayer, is that, is that the Lord would continue to keep me soft. Because um, I, I, I want to I be a better giver you know, I want to be a better giver, and I just, I love people, like I just, that's the big thing for me, is I love seeing God do things in other people, I love seeing God move in other people, you know, even Paul said, uh, what was the, I can't remember where the scripture is, but basically like, he was saying, I, I would, I would die, I would, I would, I would choose to like even give up my relationship with God if everyone else could, could experience him, Right, be cursed, right, exactly. And, uh, and so it's tough. It's tough because, I, you know, I see, I see little problems and big problems in a lot of the thinking that we, that we have and ways that we've responded to previous moves and, and th- you know, like just, just the ways that certain streams of the church have developed. And so I get scared sometimes and I, and I think things like, 
You know, what if, if I had to choose between having like strong, healthy children who never stray from the Lord, if I had to choose between that and living my life in a perpetual crazy move of the Spirit, I'm not saying that you can't have them both because God knows we need, we need both. But my, my worry is that there have been streams that have, that have put too much value on the latter so that the former one would be, was neglected. And that's my prayers. I want, I, want, I want whatever we build to be completed by our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren so that we can, like that St. Peter's Basilica, that 300 years from now, if the Lord tarries or whatever... Um, that something beautiful is completed because of what we started. So, um, that's yeah. it. That's awesome. I think of Jeremiah when Jeremiah told the inhabitants, well, the former inhabitants of Jerusalem, they had been hauled off into Babylonian captivity, and God's instruction now to them while in captivity was seek the welfare of the city that you're in. And in their welfare will be your welfare. And sure enough, the people, there's probably guys there in their 70s, right? That's just been hauled off. In the back. They're not going to see even the fruit of that. And it's not even in Jerusalem. It's in Babylon. And God's instruction to them was seek the welfare of that place. Like you guys are doing that right here in the city. And so what you're doing is you're taking that story, the good news story that we see in scripture, and you're actually living it out in the world and you're making manifest, your kids are even doing it in the tent over there. I don't know if the guy was here. I don't know. I don't even know if I met the guy. or someone preaching to the kids. I don't know how long he'd been preaching there. It was an open-air tent preacher to 10-year-olds out there, and he was telling them good news. And I want, like, you're going to see those in the lives of the kids that are being raised here. And that's going to be made manifest in their life, and that's the good news advancing the world. I highlight these, I wanted to invite these guys up and I, I looked at this panel now, I go, oh, we should got some ladies in here too, you know. Um, all of you, next yeah, next oh, time, we'll do sure. it again, we'll do this again another time. But I, I wanted to highlight these, these guys' stories and the unique areas and the domains God's called them to you because each of you have maybe some similar domains, but maybe there's other domains that God has called you to. And whatever you're doing, there's an opportunity for us to reflect on what we do and to see whether or not what we're making manifest in the world is birthed of the Spirit of God or if it's birthed from idols, right? So there's an opportunity for critical reflection because you will always act in alignment with your values. Even if you state different values, your real values are the ones that come out in our labor and our aesthetic. It's inseparable. It is always subordinate to what we really believe. I might say, I love Jesus, but when the money comes my way and it's a choice between doing something that's in alignment with kingdom principles or taking a paycheck, if I take the paycheck, no matter how much I say I'm following Jesus, those words don't matter. What's made manifest in my life matters. But I also, not, not just to get us into a mode of repentance, but also I want to just affirm all the ways that you guys are already working in the world. And I think of someone like Wendell who maybe has been doing this almost subconsciously, but has now only recently been reflecting on the way that he is working with his hands to create things is actually 
good news evangelism being spread throughout the world. And I know you guys are doing it too. I know people that are listening, I hope that you're encouraged. It's been a, a hopefully a helpful discussion uh, for you all. I'm thankful of the time that we got to have together and you guys could have been doing a bunch of other things, but I think this is like the nitty gritty. I'm, you know, this is the only conf, this is not a conference. This is the only conference I've gone to in years. I can't go to conferences anymore. I hate them. Because I feel like we go and the people on stage, we get really inspired by them for 20 minutes and then they're off to another town, you know, for the, the couple hours. And we go home and we're like, well, my life sucks because I'm not as cool as one of these guys. And I hope <laughs> one of the things that comes out of this is to see in the nitty gritty of these guys' lives that there isn't that much of a difference from your life. You're, you're working in the world with your hands, with your children, maybe not with your hands, with your minds and your intellect and all of this as an opportunity to bear witness to the ultimate source of everything that is true, good, and beautiful. So let's celebrate that and let's be not afraid to like face our idols face to face and put them on the threshing floor, right? Thanks for gathering, everybody. Thanks for doing this. This has been fun. This will probably air. Maybe we'll post some links on the, the Facebook page. It'll probably be two weeks from now. I'll do some editing of this, post this. Then if you wanted to kind of re-listen the conversation or share it with, with somebody, we'll put all the pertinent links on the, on the website. So thank you guys. Thank you guys.